0: Last week, we embarked upon our annual journey here at College Church of exploring a soul shift, looking at one of the deep interchanges we believe that God desires to make in the soul of each and every one of us, and we specifically started the exploration of what it means for God to shift us from being consumers to stewards, or from being people who keep to themselves that which was intended for others, to being people who use everything that we have for the purposes of God's kingdom. And to help us understand the journey of stewardship, Pastor Steve gave us that helpful list of words that will guide us through this series. This list was based upon the the feeding of the 5,000 story and several other instances in the New Testament where Jesus modeled for us what stewardship looks like. That we take, that we bless, we multiply, we give, and we leave. Hopefully, if you were here, that looks familiar to you. I will tell you that I chuckled a little bit at the thought of preaching a stewardship message on taking. So often our concept of stewardship is rooted in giving. And that's not a bad thing, but it certainly makes sense to me that we would say that the first step of stewardship is taking or the way we receive the gifts of God. Because before we have anything to steward, before we can embrace and employ these gifts that God desires for us to use for his kingdom purposes, we first must receive them. And while that might not sound like much of a challenge to some of you, I assure you that there is quite a difference in the way a consumer takes or receives a gift from God and the way that same gift is taken or received by a steward. I've actually uh, spent a lot of time this week considering this whole idea and it does make sense to me that the way that we receive or take something from the Lord can dramatically and distinctly affect what we do with it. So this morning I wonder what kind of taker are you and how does your style or form of taking ultimately affect your ability to move from being a consumer to being a steward? I've wrestled with this question and I have to tell you that it's been an interesting journey because every time I got before the Lord in the last few days and asked him to help me think through what all affects the way I take things from you, God, I kept thinking of, of all things, a fun house. You know, a funhouse one of those carnival features that you walk into and then you spend the next 30 minutes feeling confused or startled or, in my case, terrified— it's weird, I know, but it's even weirder if you know me at all, because you know that there's very little about the description of a fun house that I enjoy. I don't like feeling disoriented or being confined in small spaces. I sort of can't stand the idea of something jumping out in front of me unexpectedly. And above all things, I think clowns should be forbidden from the planet. If you're into clowning, I'm really sorry, but I can't do it. So having divulged all of these idiosyncrasies about myself, you might find it odd when I tell you that one of my favorite places to visit when I was a child was the top floor of the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. If you've ever been there, you know that it's the floor where you'll find the carousel and the fun house and a bunch of creepy doll houses that we're not going to talk about today. Um, but when my parents took us there as kids, I remember always hoping that we would start at that top floor which, of course, we never did because it was at the very top of a very large building. But I was always lobbying for this because, you see, my eagerness to get there had little to do with the normal attractions, the carousel or the funhouse. Rather, I wanted to get to one particular wall on the outside of the funhouse where there stood a series of mirrors that from far away looked just like your everyday ordinary glass panels. But that as you got closer to them, you realized that their reflection didn't portray what you might have expected. These crazy mirrors, as we called them, used to allow me to have all sorts of different perceptions of myself that I'd never had before. So standing in front of one of them, I suddenly became short and stout. My chin sort of disappeared into my chest, and my legs became about one-third of their size. I stood in front of another one and was suddenly a cyclops with a single buck tooth. And in front of a third mirror, I remember looking like silly putty that someone had stretched from head to toe. I remember standing there as a child, pretending that I must be the world's only seven-foot, five-inch, five-year-old. These mirrors made me laugh. They made me stare, sometimes in awe, but other times in horror. And they certainly offered me perceptions of myself that I'd never had before, if only for the few moments when all the other kids in the museum seemed to flock to the fun house, and I could stand there happily jumping from mirror to mirror. This is one of the delights of my childhood. That was until one particular visit to the museum with a group of my cousins. We'd finally arrived at the top floor, and so while they all scattered and made their way into the fun house, I made my way to the wall of mirrors, and I stood there happily being mesmerized by Stubby Emily or Cyclops Emily And then all of a sudden, one of the cousins emerged from the funhouse and began watching what I was doing. And just as I had stepped in front of the silly putty mirror, he looked at me in the mirror, standing right beside me, and said, well, that mirror isn't fun at all. I looked at him kind of disgusted, and he continued by saying, I mean, it's just a normal mirror. That's what you always look like. What's fun with that? And then he scattered his way back into the funhouse. Now, i got to tell you, my five-year-old imagination started going crazy because as I stared into that mirror for a few minutes longer, I began to wonder if my cousin had just clued me in to some truth that I was not previously aware of. A point of context to this story, uh, I was the only girl in this particular group of cousins, so I tended to be the target of some psychological warfare on a number of occasions in our childhood. This might have just been one of the finest occasions. I was deeply concerned as I stood there reflecting on the ramifications of what my cousin had told me. If this mirror was reflecting what other people actually saw when they looked at me, then I was a goblin. A seven-foot, five-inch goblin with a pinhead and string beans for legs. I was suddenly so confused My previously carefree demeanor as a five-year-old completely changed for the rest of the day. I was suddenly quiet, and I stared at other children who I thought were suddenly now staring back at me, looking at me strangely. I remember literally riding in the car on the way home and getting leg aches, because now I was convinced my legs were cramped in the back seat of the car. And I remember ducking as I entered the front door of my parents' home that night, afraid that I might hit my ridiculously fragile noggin on the doorframe above me. This was ridiculous, but my cousin was a devious genius. Later that night, he caught me standing in front of the bathroom mirror, staring at what I had previously thought of as my normal reflection. And without missing a beat, he just kind of pointed and said, now that's funny, and then kept walking. (laughs) Which only furthered my concern that something about my perception was skewed that maybe this mirror was showing me what I wanted to see, but not what other people actually saw when they looked at me. This went on for a number of hours at my house until I finally broke down that evening sobbing when I realized that there was no way my 7-foot, 5-inch frame was possibly going to fit into the strawberry shortcake sleeping bag that had been laid out for me at the cousin sleepover. At that point, my parents got involved. They listened to me explain what had happened, and they took time to explain to me that this was another one of my cousin's tricks, that my perception of reality was just fine, and that the reflection I saw in that mirror was, in fact, what they saw. It's a ridiculous story, I realize, about a child who had an overactive imagination and some devious cousins. But it is hard to dispute the fact that perception is a powerful thing, isn't it? If I see the glass half full, then generally speaking, my outlook is positive. But if it's half empty, then I tend to have a gloomier disposition. If I attend a, a sporting event, a game or a meet, and I am, my perception is that the referee has it out for my team, they're against me, then no matter what call that referee makes against my team, it's wrong, it's unjust, it's unfair, because my perception simply won't allow me to see it any other way. This is what's so fascinating to me about perception. It's the way we organize and identify and relate to all of the things in the world around us. All of the inputs of life, if you will. Our perceptions are formed by our education, by what we do or don't know. They're formed by our experiences and what's happened to us in the past. And our perceptions sometimes are even formed by the way our senses have or have not yet been formed. I won't stand up here and pretend to understand all the psychology of perception, but I do think it's safe to say that our perception of the world around us, that is the people, the places, the experiences, and the things that we encounter on a daily basis, dramatically and unquestionably affect our behavior and our outlook. Our perception guides us in terms of our choices and our habits and our lifestyle. And this is true for better or for worse. So this is what I'm wondering. If this journey of moving from consumer to steward encompasses the taking of everything that we have, not just our money or our physical possessions, but everything, our time, our treasure, our talent, our intellect, our skills, our power, our connections, all of it, and employing it for the purposes of God's kingdom and for the sake of others, and if that first step in the journey of stewardship is the actual taking of those gifts from God or the posture with which we receive them, then what role does perception play in the act of taking? And how does our method of taking ultimately affect our ability to be good stewards? Think about it. The way you take a gift from a friend is likely quite different from the way you take a free sample from a door-to-door salesperson, right? But the question is why? What's the difference? And why is it so easy for us to just reach out and take certain gifts and sheer delight while other gifts cause us to pause and contemplate and reflect before we receive them? It seems to me that our perception of the giver of the gift, the gift itself, and then our perception of ourselves as the receiver of these things all come into play when thinking about the way we take something that's been given to us. And that leads us to the parable of the minas this morning. You see, Jesus understood the power of perception, and I believe he used parables at times, like this one from Luke's gospel, to help broaden and enrich and challenge our perception, both of himself and of his kingdom. So maybe as you listen to the reading this morning of the text today, you realize that the parable of the minas sounds very familiar to another parable that comes from Matthew's gospel the parable of the talents. In both cases, a master entrusts a portion of his wealth. In Matthew, the currency is referred to as the talent, while the Lucan account records it as the mina. And there's all sorts of debate amongst biblical and theological scholars about whether or not these two stories are actually the same, or if Jesus told two different but really similar stories at different times and they were recorded by two different people. And we don't need to get into the weeds of all of that this morning. Because in both cases, the master bestowed a portion of his wealth. He gave a gift, and then he departed the scene, leaving his servants in charge of his things, the money that he left them. And he told them to operate with it while he was away. But parables are funny things. They intentionally leave out details which cause us as the hearers or the readers of them to have to engage our imaginations a bit in order to fill in some of the blanks and come to a greater understanding of what the story is actually trying to communicate. And so true to form in the parable of the mind is we don't know exactly how well these servants knew their master prior to this engagement. There are hints in the text that lead us to believe that this master had a reputation and that he was of some renown. But to say how one of the servants might have known him more or less than the others. Would be, computer- would be purely speculative. We simply don't know. In the same we have no real idea of how these masters perceive themselves. In relationship to the master and his greater kingdom. The fact that they were called servants does imply that they were under the governance of the master according to the socioeconomic and political structures of the day. But again, we can't say for sure. And then there's the question of just exactly how much the gift that the master gave them was actually worth. Nobody really knows or can compare to today's monetary standards what a mina was. Some people believe it was a large sum of money, especially to bestow in one lump sum, somewhere probably between 100 and 6,000 days' wages of the average servant. 100 to 6,000, this is a pretty large spectrum. But even at the low end of it, we're talking about a significant chunk of change for any of these guys. So... Some scholars will even go so far as to argue that the minas that are referenced in this parable are actually representative of far more than just money. Kenneth Bailey suggests that to fully glean from this particular teaching of Christ, especially as North Americans, we need to liberate it from our Western capitalistic mindset and the suppositions that have influenced the way we perceive this teaching of Jesus. And so if you were here last week, and you identified a gift that God is calling you to steward in your life, then your interpretation of this parable might actually include that currency. You see, whatever the case may be, we know that the gift the master bestowed upon his servants was of significant value. And he leaves these guys with this treasure and then the story quickly fast forwards to the day that the master returns. He's now the king and he calls his servants together to give account for what they did with the gift he had given them. The first servant reports that during his absence he has in fact put the money to good work and now has doubled the amount originally bestowed upon him. This guy has clearly seized the opportunity and significantly multiplied what he'd been given in some type of investment that I think we can assume was for the greater benefit of the kingdom because the master's response is so verbose. He gives him lots of accolades and then he gives him charge over 10 cities in his kingdom. The second servant also reports an increase in his gift to the king. He states that he's now in possession of one and a half times the original amount he'd been given. And the master acknowledges this servant's efforts at building his kingdom and puts him in charge of five cities. And then there's that third servant. And this poor sap is the kind of guy that you read about in the Bible and it just makes you want to shake your head and think, oh man. Because he doesn't even try to hide it. He just comes to the master and says that he was afraid. And so he hid the gift he'd been given He returns it to him in the exact original form he'd been handed it. It's just a little dirtier now from having been in the ground for some time. And he tells him he was simply afraid that he wouldn't be able to repay it. And so the master isn't pleased with this response at all. He gives this guy a royal lambasting, if you will, telling him that he hasn't even taken advantage of the smallest opportunity to grow his gift by putting it into what I would imagine would be like a low-interest savings account account. He's done nothing. And so he banishes this servant for his foolish choices and behavior. Who said there isn't an art to taking? These are three different servants with three very different perceptions of what's happening here. And three servants who had very different modes of taking what the master decided to give them. I think on one hand, we can imagine that the first servant took the master's gift and got right to work. He seemed to receive the gift with no strings attached and with the hope of great benefit. He appears to perceive the master to be a person of great generosity and trust. After all, he was giving a portion of his kingdom's work to himself, a servant. I think that guy appeared to feel the weight of responsibility. Otherwise, I'm not sure he would have done anything in the first place with the gift. But beyond feeling that weight of responsibility, he also seemed to be empowered, to be creative and bold with how he proceeded with the gift. His perception of the giver allowed him to receive the gift wholeheartedly as an opportunity to invest in something larger than himself. But on the far other end of the spectrum, you have that third servant. And this guy seems to me to receive the gift like a set of shackles that have been put on his hands and his feet. I can just see him trembling as the master hands him the gift. Because he perceives this giver to be someone who is hard and demanding, as some of the translations read. A person with high standards that he's just not sure he can live up to. So this servant seems to perceive all sorts of conditions and caveats that come along with the gift that's been bestowed upon him. And as the master walks away, I imagine this third servant being overcome with anxiety and thinking, oh, please do not let me screw this up. It's like he takes the gift as no gift at all, really, but rather as an obligation and a debt that he will simply be called to repay. Now remember, we said Jesus... Told parables to help his followers reflect on their own journeys and assumptions. So, reading the story throughout the past week, I've repeatedly asked myself Do my perceptions of God and the gifts that he's given me reflect either of these servants? Where do I see myself in the way that these gifts were received? I'd like to tell you that I'm like the first servant, that I understand the master to be inclusive and desiring of me to be a part of his greater kingdom work, that I receive the gifts that I've been given as blessings and opportunities for me to wholeheartedly invest in something that's not for my own good, but for the good of a larger entity than I could ever be a part of in and of myself. But then I begin to wonder if I can be more like the third servant. His perception of the Master leads me to decide that he is gruff and demanding, and that he's handing me something that has all kinds of strings attached to it, or that I will be called to repay. Does he think I can really do this, or is he giving me something that comes with expectations he knows I can never really live up to? I've wondered if I received the gifts he offers as obligations. Or as things I wish he'd rather give someone else. Somebody who I think probably has a better idea of what to do with them. I think the way that these two servants take their gifts seems to represent the far ends of the consumer to steward scale. The owner versus the manager. And the one who perceives the giver as generous versus demanding. Or the gifts to be opportunities instead of obligations. But if these two servants encapsulate that consumer to steward spectrum, then I have to wonder, what's the point and the purpose of the second servant in this story? And I wonder if he's often the overlooked party. You see, by my assessment, the second servant seems to receive the master's gift optimistically, but maybe slightly reserved. He seems to recognize the great charge given to him by the master whom he perhaps perceives to be reasonable and yet a little bit intimidating. I imagine this guy spending time mulling over a plan and evaluating the market for his investment and then finally deciding a middle, on, the middle, on a mo- middle of the road option that feels sure will yield a solid return which will appease the master but which won't box himself in too much or put himself in too much risk create a sense of jeopardy. His perception of the giver seems to incline him to receive the gift partially. Embracing the idea of having the increased power and influence that comes with the gift but also in a manner that protects him from being expected to take on too much additional responsibility. Now while we can't possibly know the state of the servant's heart or mind, when he received that gift from the master, I do think that we can surmise that the potential of the gift he'd been given was likely more than he'd collected because we saw what its potential could have been in the offering of the first servant. And it strikes me as noteworthy that upon the second servant's report of what he'd done with the gift, the master responds less enthusiastically. He acknowledges what the second servant had brought to the table But he also seems to just hand him his fair reward without the kind of verbose accolades and acknowledgement he'd offered the first guy. So often when we read this parable, I think we focus in on the first and the third servants because we don't know what to make of this second servant or his encounter with the master, his interaction with him. And yet I wonder if this second servant doesn't represent where so many of us are living in this journey of stewardship. If just like him, we view and perceive God, our master, to be fair and even-handed, heck, we even like him a lot and we're grateful for everything that he's given us and we believe that he does want us to be a part of employing those gifts into his kingdom work. But we're just not really sure we want to employ all of our, all of our wealth, put all of our eggs in that single basket for the purposes of someone else besides ourselves. And so while we like the power that comes with the gifts that we've been given and the control that those things bring our way, we're just not sure that we really want to have the added responsibility that might come if we're successful with what we've been given. Because it's important to note that that's exactly what these servants were handed as their reward, right? Increased responsibility. So I wonder then if it's possible that this second servant takes the gift he's been given, but he only does so in a half-hearted manner, leaving room for his own pursuits. He gains just enough profit on the master's gift that he can feel he's done his part, followed the rules as he was commanded, but he's not really fully invested. Does that ring any kind of bell for you? As you look at the things that God has given you in your life, Do you ever withhold just a portion of it so that should things go badly or not pan out the way you think they should, you'll still have something to hold on to? I fear that this kind of taking is common in the church today. We take the gifts that God has given us and we put them to work, kind of. (laughs) We look for ways to serve the church that will fit into our already jam-packed schedules And we'll advocate for someone who's mistreated in our workplace as long as it doesn't rock the boat or get us in trouble with anyone else at our office. We spend time developing a gift or a skill that we know we have been given, but because we'd secretly rather like to be good at something else, we sort of parse out what time we spend developing that original gift. Or maybe we give exactly a tithe and not a dime more and only after we've paid our bills. If you can identify with this second servant and the way he received the gift from the master in any way, then let me ask you one more question. What was the master really after in this parable? What do you perceive he was looking for? Because it occurs to me that it's easy to read over this text and assume that the master was solely looking to make a profit. That the gifts he bestowed upon these servants were intended only to be grown in amount and value so that when he returned, he would grow wealthier as a result of their labor. And yet notice that when the first servant reports that he's doubled the gift, the master doesn't wax on about the profit margin or the percentage of gain. He simply commends the servant for being trustworthy or faithful, as some translations put it. And the problem then with our assumption that the master was only after measurable gain is that trustworthiness and faithfulness certainly can't only be measured in quantifiable terms. These are measurements of the heart. The amount of eagerness and earnestness and effort that's involved, not simply what can or can't be counted, at the end of a day. And so as the second servant hands over his smaller yet notable prophet to the master, I find it extremely interesting that there is little response. It leads me to wonder if the master didn't find what he was looking for in that offering. If the second servant did just enough to be safe with what he'd been trusted, even though both he and the master knew that far more could have come from his gift for the sake of the greater kingdom. How do you perceive God and the gifts that He has given to you in your life? And how is that perception affecting the way you receive and steward those gifts? Is God generous and inclusive, or is He hard and demanding? And are the gifts He's offering you opportunities, or are they obligations? Are you owning that which God specifically desires for you to employ for his purposes? Or are you merely managing what he's given you? Not really claiming them as your own in the first place, but feeling ridden with the responsibility that you might never be able to repay. Or maybe you're living somewhere in the middle, partly receiving the gifts of God, but not yet fully investing them or leaning into the fullness of their potential. You see these three servants had one opportunity to take to take a gift that had been given to them by the master and to put it to work for his kingdom. But for us this journey of moving from consumer to steward involves the daily discipline of taking.